You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Kirk and Emily Duplessis, a husband and wife team that have built a career through entrepreneurship and real estate investing. Emily is the host of the Rental Rookie podcast and the mastermind behind the real estate operations for the Duplessis family. Kirk is a successful entrepreneur as the founder and CEO of Option Alpha, one of the leading authorities on options trading. Kirk and I actually last spoke all about options trading back on episode 7 of the Millennial Investing Podcast. But today, I talk with Kirk and his wife, Emily, all about their real estate journey, the mistakes and successes they've had, and how they're positioning their portfolio for a recession. Throughout this episode, you'll hear just how great these two are, which means our conversation ran a little bit long, and I decided to cut it into two episodes. So today's episode is part one of my conversation with Kirk and Emily, and we'll finish the conversation in part two next week. So without further delay, let's dive into this entertaining and educational conversation with Kirk and Emily Duplessis. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Kirk Duplessis and Emily Duplessis. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we're really excited to be here. Thanks. I think this is the first time that I've had a husband-wife team on the show, so I'm excited to have you guys here. The audience is probably familiar with you, Kirk. We spoke back on episode 7 of my other podcast called Millennial Investing. But in that episode, we talked all about options trading and didn't really discuss your real estate portfolio, nor were we honored to have Emily with us like we do today. So let's kick off this episode by you both telling us a bit about yourselves. Well, I was not a real estate investor by trade. I will say that. I actually knew nothing about it. I started my professional career as an English teacher. So I hated math. I hated numbers. I was all into teaching Shakespeare and poetry and never imagined that life would go this way. And then I married a guy who's a finance nerd and a numbers guy. And after a couple of years of him just like, we need to invest in real estate. We need to invest in real estate. I finally gave in. And then it just transpired from there. We started investing. Once we bought the first property, I realized how powerful it was and how it really could help us reach our lifestyle goals that we were really aiming for. And we were really intentional about setting those goals early in our marriage. And so I just ultimately, maybe four or five years after getting started, I was able to leave my job as a teacher and now kind of manage our portfolio. So pretty crazy journey. I never imagined this is where we'd be. Yeah, happened fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my background a little bit, for those of you who didn't listen to the other podcast, is um, I was a finance guy, always been a finance person, always interested in numbers. Literally, you can't get me to read anything but finance, money, (laughs) economic type books. So went to work in... Wall Street or on Wall Street for Deutsche Bank as an M&A banker for a little bit in mergers and acquisitions and decided I didn't want to do that. Then I switched over, jumped over the Chinese wall and went to work at BB&T Capital Markets as a REIT analyst. So I was in the, a group that was analyzing a bunch of multifamily REITs and some industrials and a couple specialty REITs. And it was really, really fascinating. So to me, you know, real estate is a combination of investing generally and broadly, which I love. But then also I have this background in REITs where I got a chance to talk to CEOs and CFOs and understand 
whole capital allocation model and the capital structure and what their business plan was. And, uh, and it was a fascinating experience for me. So I very much try to consider ourselves a mini REIT and we try to, you know, we're trying to build up our little mini REIT portfolio. And um, yeah, that's where we are. Was that experience as the REIT analyst, what really got you guys into real estate? Because I mean, Kirk, you invest in the stock market heavily and you even have your own business about options trading. So why real estate? So from my side of it, my family's always been involved in real estate. So they were in the mortgage industry forever. And I helped my parents in the mortgage industry for a little bit as well. And you know, like our family trips jokingly, but not jokingly at the same time, were to houses and open houses. Like that, that's what I remember doing as a kid. We would drive around town and we would go to open houses. And I was eight or nine years old and we'd walk through these houses and talk about them. So I've never not known the experience of having real estate in my life. And so, you know, like when I think about options trading or investing generally, I'm always of the opinion that you have to have multiple streams of income. So as great as I think that options trading is, and as much money as we have allocated to options trading, you know, we've also decided, look, we need something that is also as not as correlated to the options market and what we're doing there and that can grow on its own, you know, separately. And so so that's what I think about real estate. So Emily, I'm gonna use your own word here. So I didn't come up with this and I'm not <laughs> I'm not calling you this. This is what you wrote on your website. And that word is clueless. You've mentioned that you were clueless when you bought your first rental property. And I bring that up because a lot of listeners haven't done their first deal yet because they're nervous or they just don't think they know enough. And I know I felt the same way when I bought my first property. So how can someone listening to the show today overcome that fear or nervousness and just get started and buy their first deal? Well, I definitely think that there is a lot of us that suffer from analysis paralysis. Luckily, I was not one of those because of this guy, I would say. I really leaned on him because he was the numbers guy. And I didn't know anything. Like I said, my background was in teaching and English. I lived in my same house until I was 18 years old. Like we never moved. Like I didn't have really a lot of experience with investing. And so I think if you're out there and you're wondering, like, I want to do it, but I'm scared, I'm nervous. I think that the first step is knowledge. Like you have to start with teaching yourself some stuff. If you don't have somebody that you can lean on to really help you and guide you, then I think you need to have knowledge. Knowledge is power. And I think more importantly, knowledge is confidence. The more that you can buy listening to podcast episodes and reading books and doing getting in communities. I mean, anymore today, we don't have to go to in-person communities. There are so many great communities online where you can go and ask questions and learn. And so that you can get yourself a little bit of knowledge that's going to build a little bit of that confidence to be able to get out there and start taking action. And I would say like even, I mean, no offense, but like, you were like less than clueless. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah. I was like, we were going through numbers. And I'm like, listen, the ROI on this is like 25%. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, what is an ROI? And I'm like, I didn't know what an ROI was. No clue. I was like, return on investment. And you're like, again, I don't know what you're talking no, about. No, we you used know? to argue about it. Like, I was oh, like, why? Why would we put all this money in to just make $500 a month? Like, we have $15,000. <laughs> why would we put it in to make five? You know, and I just didn't understand. But once I got the knowledge and I was able to understand it, it changed everything. Yeah. There's a quote that I heard that I think is really powerful, especially for newbies. And I think it really relates to anything, but this idea that knowledge is abundant, but the desire to learn is scarce. And so if you have just a little bit of desire, the knowledge is out there. It, yeah. You know, like there's an abundance of it. So I think it's really funny that you mentioned that $500, Emily, because. My family is not real estate investors. I kind of just stumbled into it myself. They have, I think I'm the first one in my family to ever make any type of investment at all. So 
when I tell them I'm investing this money in a property and I'm happy, I'm getting $300, $350 a door and I'm, I'm excited about that, right? My return is really mm-hmm. good. It's over 20%. So I'm psyched. And they're like, you're only getting 300 bucks a month. Like what? That's nothing, right? So it's too funny you mentioned that. So how Kirk and Emily, your opinion too, what did you focus on to learn first? And how were you able to learn that in a way? I mean, you didn't, like you said, you didn't know anything. So how were you able to learn that successfully without getting overwhelmed, without giving up? How can someone who comes from a similar background to you follow the same path that you did and learn? Well, we got started and I jumped in with full trust in him. And so I think it really is about I think you have to start with figuring out kind of what your goals are with it and what you want it to look like. Even if you aren't sure, like you invest because you want to get something out of it, right? So whether that's a money return, whether it's a lifestyle goal, whatever that is. Um, so I think first, really, you got to start there. You know, what are you looking to get out of it? And I always say, like, start locally, start looking around locally, start figuring out, like, just start paying attention to your market, whether you rent your own home or own your own home. Start just kind of seeing what is happening in your local area, an area that you know, an area that you're comfortable with. And so you can just start getting a feel for like the market itself and properties and what they sell for and what they're listing for. I think that's kind of a low barrier of entry, to, so to speak, where you're working in an area where you understand it and you know it. And so I think starting in your own area, just kind of learning is really key. Yeah, I would say starting with a small property. Yeah. And a small deal would probably be my biggest thing. You know, the first property we bought was a small two-bedroom condo. And I like that two-bedroom condo, not only because it was really cheap and that's all we could afford at the time, <laughs> but also because it was a condo. You know, like we didn't have to worry about the outside maintenance, mm-hmm. you know, it needed some repairs inside for sure. And so for us, it was a it was a manageable property. You know, it wasn't overwhelming. You know, we didn't start with a 14 unit apartment building with a management and a clubhouse and a pool, right? And I think people feel like they have to start there. You know, like our portfolio has changed quite a bit from where we started. And I don't think it's a bad idea to start with training wheels. Buy a small property, team up with somebody, go in on a partnership with somebody, buy a property that has good bones, it's a solid house, it's a small small house, good location, small townhouse, condo, whatever, and learn. And you learn so much Yeah, just doing that for a couple of years and you'd be okay. I think if you're going to do anything, get your numbers right. If you don't, you haven't learned all the tenant screening tips and you haven't learned all of that stuff. I think if you can get your numbers right to start with, that's what we did. We had our numbers. We didn't know how to screen tenants. We didn't know where to list. We didn't know any of that stuff. We had our numbers. We did that. And then honestly, we learned like trial and error. We got out there, we made mistakes, we learned and then we were able to take the things that we learned and you know apply it to the acquisition of our next property. So to me the key is like the numbers have to work. And if you can figure out that part, the rest of it to say, yeah, the rest of it is a little bit easier. And that pressure and that stress of like, am I gonna make money? Am I not gonna make money? Like that's out. Then you can focus on the other stuff. I really like that advice you gave Kirk about starting small because I think and I talk about that a lot on the show because I feel the exact same way. You hear a lot of people talking about go big, you know, it's I wish I started bigger sooner. And I mean, that's all great, but I feel like you need to start small first, like you said. And I relatively recently went long distance and I did I took the exact same strategy. I I told myself I'd never buy a single family property. I didn't want to go that asset class. I only wanted multifamily. But I got stuck and I wouldn't buy a deal. I couldn't find a deal that fit me perfectly and I was getting frustrated. So a great deal came across my table that was single family. And I said, you know what? The whole mortgage all in is three hundred dollars a month. It's a small property. I said if everything goes bad, I can cover $300 a month if I have to. So the risk is small. It's going to be a huge learning opportunity and the return numbers are good. So I'm going to jump. 
Whereas if that was a 50 unit apartment complex, I probably wouldn't have done that. So I, I think that's really good advice. And when we talk about getting started in the different numbers, is there anything specific that you started with to learn? What were the most important things that right from the beginning you wanted to know? To me, well, as it, I'll answer this question, maybe like how I used to look at it before and then maybe how I look at it now. <laughs> I think that before I was really concerned about the numbers and I didn't look at all the numbers. I was really looking at kind of scratching the surface of the analysis that we could do. And it's funny because like I came from a re-background and a re-background when you're doing models and whatever, I mean, you're taking into consideration everything, but most of those numbers are kind of given to you, right? So like you don't necessarily need to go out and visit 1,200 properties, right? They know what the CapEx is going to be. So you throw in CapEx. And so initially, I was more concerned with rent and payment, and that's it. And I didn't really look at things like utilities. I didn't really look at you know the CapEx that was coming down the line a year or two years or five years from now. I didn't really factor that in. I really wish I would have on a lot of properties. I probably would have offered a lot less. So I think initially... I was probably wrong in just looking at the surface level stuff. I think I could have spent a little bit extra time and dug a little bit deeper into the numbers. I also think that we didn't pay attention to the flow of properties. Like we recently sold a property that was that we never should have bought. Like I literally hate the property for a million reasons. And one of the biggest reasons is that it had a terrible layout. Like it was just super choppy, but the numbers worked at the time. So we were like, hey, the numbers work, you know. But I didn't think about the the flow and the layout. And it always took forever to get a renter in there. It was like a terrible layout, didn't work for anybody. People didn't really stay. So things like flow and location, I mean, all the things that you hear people talk yeah. about all the time that are important are really important. I think location is really big, honestly. I really think it is. And I think that goes back to the idea of in the beginning, thinking about what you want out of it, the type of tenants that you want to have. You know, it's these little things that maybe sound foo-foo, but at the same time, it's like, think about like, what kind of tenants do you want to attract? Do you want to have to go and knock on the door and pick the rent up every month? Or do you want to trust that they're going to send it whatever vehicle that you want to come, right? So I think really spending time to think about that because location plays into that. You know, you could maybe get a really great, like a really deal, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, but like something that seems really cheap. Yeah, that looks awesome on the surface. And then you dig in and it's in a terrible part of town and it's going to attract terrible tenants. And like, that's just headache after headache after headache. And granted, there are people out there who do that and love want it. Those headaches and that's great. I'm so <laughs> thankful that there are because those people need a place to live. So I'm thankful that there are people out there who will do that. But I think that you have to benefit from thinking about that ahead of time and location. I think if we've learned anything in the years we've been doing this, location is really important. A lot of people fall into that trap too, because it's, I call it the spreadsheet trap because people look on paper and it looks so good. And the numbers, you know, you just, I got to do this deal. It looks so great. And then you buy it and you realize, oh, my vacancy is higher than I expected. My rents are lower than I thought. My repair costs are much higher because the tenant quality is lower and they're ruining my house. So my return numbers don't actually end up being as good as they seemed anyway. I definitely agree. Now, when you're looking at location, Emily, what are the specific things that make up a good location? What are those characteristics that somebody should really focus on? I think you want to pay attention when you're kind of like doing your audit of an area. You want to pay attention to things like put yourself in the renter's shoes, like things they want to go do. What kind of industries are close? Like where do people work? Like you have to pay attention to the community itself and not even just like pigeonhole on a street. Like in that community, what are the main employment industries that are there that people are being employed? Maybe you want to be close. People don't want a long commute a lot of time. So are they close to that? Are you paying attention to the crime in the areas? You know, some people that's really important. Some people it's not. Are they close to grocery stores and coffee shops and all that sort of stuff? I think you have to really think about the community as a whole and like what's the vibe of the community? 
What do people who come here want? And like ask around if you're not sure. I mean, ask your friends, ask people who you know that rent. Like, what do you look for when you're looking for a rental? What are like your five key things? And take that information and use it as you're starting to kind of figure out where you want to be. I think it's easy, like everybody kind of knows their bad part of the neighborhood, but it's a lot more than just being like, okay, I want to stay away from the bad part of the neighborhood, but now all this other area is good. So where do I go? So I think you have to pay attention to that. You have to pay attention to sometimes like some areas are mostly renter, like there's a lot of renters in that area versus areas or communities where it's mostly homeowners. So like all that stuff kind of should play into making your final decision about location. Yeah. I think one, you know, a cool tip that I learned and I still do now is when I was working in the REIT business, REITs are fascinating. You have 12 to 20 people running a multi-billion dollar company. I mean, literally just a very small handful of people. And what they would do when they were looking at properties is they would send out a person to look at the property and they would, one company in particular would ask them to record their dashboard and drive a mile in each direction. That's it. They'd just drive a mile in each direction. They'd watch as a team that video and just see what was around that property in a mile. So what's really cool now is, and Emily will see me doing this all the time, is I'll get on Google Earth and I will drive the streets in Google Earth for like 45 minutes. And I'll go up and down the streets and I'll be like, oh, okay, there's a Kroger. There's like, you know, eight homeless people sleeping there. So like, what? you know, what is that? Does that tell me anything new about mm-hmm. the property or, you know, or whatever? Or there's a five stores that are all have broken windows and are boarded up. Okay. What does that tell me about the property? I think doing just even a little bit of analysis like that, if you don't want to go to that area, or if you don't feel comfortable in that area, just driving on Google Earth, like how are you going to feel having a renter there? Yeah. I do that exact same thing on Google Earth. I think that's a, a great way to do it. And I've even had people say that they, if they're looking at a specific area, maybe they don't live there, it's too far to go. They'll put an ad out on Craigslist and say, 50 bucks, just use your cell phone, walk around, take videos, yeah. and then just send it to me, upload it to Google Drive. And technology is amazing these days. It helps so it's much so and it, it's so huge. And I stress that a lot in the podcast. So I think it's really great that you guys are, are doing something similar. So did you guys initially start with rental properties? And if you did, why did you choose that strategy? Besides our house. Yeah, besides our house that we bought way back when we first got married. And you've always are been in the stock market. But yeah, I mean, we've been in the rep like when we got started in whatever year that was, twenty something, twelve. We bought our day. yeah. Well, that was our first house, two thousand nine. Yeah. yeah. But our first true bloom rental property was in twenty twelve. Yeah. I mean, that's been the route. Now it's changed a lot. Kirk has mentioned like our portfolio, we have kind of dabbled in a lot of different <laughs> yeah. asset types. So a lot of times people will say, find one that you like and stick with it. And I think that's great advice. But I also think there's a lot to learn when you try a few out because you might find that you like one more than the other. And that's what we're learning now as we're further along. Life has changed a bit since we first got started. Like we're starting to see that there are different asset classes that maybe we would have never thought of having. So I mean, like our portfolio, we've had condos, we've had townhouses, we've had single family, we have duplexes, we have student rentals, we have vacation rentals. So like we have dabbled in a little bit of everything. And it's, yeah, we've done like short, like we flipped and then put long-term renters in there. I mean, so we've done a lot of the different types that are out there. And I think there's a lot to learn whenever you kind of go that route. So yeah, we've been like rental property the whole time. Yeah. We've been starting to dabble more in syndications. We have. Yes, we've doing, added those. Doing some of those. But, um, but I think ultimately I see the value in a rental property as being a rental property as, as what it what it should be. And I think there's value in flips, obviously. But for us, you know, the core of what we do is still rentals. Mm-hmm. Why'd you start with rentals? Flips usually garner a lot of popularity or interest from people for various different reasons. So why'd you start right with rentals? You know, to me, it was like, it was always a long-term play. Yeah. So 
I knew with a rental property. You know, flip property is interesting because when you flip a property, you have a pretty good idea of what could happen. And there's a lot of ways that you can kind of get out of the deal or be flexible in maneuvering around it. But when you get into a rental property and the numbers work, I mean, it's almost to the point at which it's not going to go broke unless you do something stupid. Like if you take care of the property, if you put in good tenants and you have good tenant screening and you run it well and you bought it right, it's almost a no-brainer, right? Like it's going to take care of itself. And so to me, I thought, look, the best way that we can start, and we were young in our marriage and put a lot of what we had at the time into Most that first property, had, yeah. right? Well, we didn't have much left over after we put in that first property. I knew that that was going to be a safe investment if we held on to it long enough. And so for me, I would rather go with something that potentially made a little bit of money, but was a lot safer. As you know, from probably our, our last conversation, I'm a pretty conservative person and trader. And um, I'd rather put money into something that was a little bit less income, but way more conservative, higher probability of success than to try and shoot for something that was a, a home run I could do once and maybe not repeat for another two or three years. Emily, you mentioned all the different strategies that you guys are doing now, all the different asset classes that you're in. And I definitely want to talk about all of them. But before we do that, which asset class within rentals did you start with? Did you go with single families? Did you do small multi, large multi? And I'm guessing based on Kirk recommending going small that you probably started with some smaller properties. But what did that look like? How did you decide exactly what type of property you wanted within the rental property strategy? We actually started with a condo. And actually, the first four properties that we bought were either a condo or a townhouse. So I know that there's a lot of... Sometimes people say, don't go that route, fees, association fees, stuff like that. But it really worked for us. And where we were in our life, we didn't have a lot of money. We actually had to buy a property. We were pretty much forced to buy a property that was about 45 minutes away from us because we couldn't afford to buy one where we lived. And we didn't let, like, let that stop us, which a lot of people do. They'll be like, oh, I can't afford it in my area. And I hear it in my community a lot. Like, oh, man, what do I do? Well, start looking, branch out a little bit. Like, it was a little bit scary to do that, but it was another area that we knew. And so we did it. And it was a two bedroom, two bath. It was a HUD property. So it needed work, lots of sweat equity. We carried ceramic tile. Was it ceramic tile? Oh, Oh, up like flights of steps. I remember like the sweat equity we put into it because we couldn't afford really to bring in other people to work on it. So we started where we could. And I think the key is not overextending yourself. On your first deal. And I think I was, that is like so incredibly important because I think that's a recipe for just disaster. If you overextend yourself on the first deal, you're getting into it. You don't know everything that you need to know. So to me, it's play it safe in the beginning and get something that fits. And if you can't find anything, wait, there's yeah. always another deal. Like you do not have to just jump on it because you feel like there's nothing else out there. There will always be another deal. So find something that really fits with what you can afford, like worst case scenario, you have a backup plan, like that's where you got to start. Yeah. I think, you know, another reason why we did this small singles just to start was was financing. I mean, yeah. like we haven't really talked about financing a lot yet, but you know, financing when you're starting and you don't have a history as a landlord, maybe you're short on cash, or you don't have a lot of cash. You know, single families and townhouses and condos are going to be one of your best choices because they're easier to finance. You know, it's much harder to finance a four, you know, fourplex, fiveplex, or a house that needs to be torn down and renovated than it is to finance something that's already standing and just needs a little bit of like lipstick, right? And so I think for us too, it was a it was a cash thing. It was we didn't want to start too big, and it was a financing, you know, component too. We didn't have enough money to buy these in cash, so we had to finance them. And we had to do it small. My first property was actually a condo as well. It was a house hack. So it wasn't necessarily a straight up rental, but it was a condo. And uh, and I actually have a, a person that I know that I talk about real estate with sometimes. And he lives in my local area. He owns 
60 to 70 condo units. And I was amazed to learn that when I talked to him. Yeah, I said the same thing as you, Emily. But he just, he knows his niche. He knows, and they're all in, I think, like two or three complexes. So he knows it can, if it sells at this price, I'll buy it. And if it's anything higher than this dollar amount, I'm not interested. And so he spends no time on it ever. He just gets alerts or people send it to him. I mean, he owns so many units that if anybody wants to sell, they go right to him. And oh, yeah, yeah. I think condos, and that's the perfect they were example. Awesome. Like, you know, condos to me are like, you have to really know the building and the area, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so much so that you have to know the occupancy and how much is owner occupied versus non owner occupied. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. But if you do know it, it's very powerful because mm-hmm. you have a strategic advantage over somebody else who does. Now, all of that said, we do need to be careful to look for HOA fees because that is a big component of it. And they can change kind of quick if, you know, just by way of how it works. And I agree. And not even HOA fees. I would say one of the other things that is a major component is the ability to get financing at the FHA and Fannie and Freddie level. You know, the property that, so the condo that we owned was a HUD property. And so we bought it directly from HUD, had a lot of issues. I didn't know at the time that, and this was in a complex of, there's probably 10 or 12 buildings, so probably 120-ish units. For some reason, our building was subdivided into its own mini condo association. So we only had, I think, 10 units in our condo association. And so immediately, if one other person in that building started to rent out their unit, then we were going to lose our FHA financing ability. We were no longer going to be FHA approved, which meant that the value of our condo would have dropped like a rock if that would have happened. So it's the fees, it's the FHA approvals, it's the reserves. reserves. I think there's a lot of things that go into it that you just, it's not that they're bad. You just have to be aware of them. Yeah. I ran into those exact same situations that you said. It wasn't a separate entity within the whole complex, but still, when the it's very different than a single family house, you just kind of go through the appraisal, the inspection, everything comes right. back okay, you're good. With the condo, like you said, the homeowners association has to be run properly. They have to have enough reserves, and if they don't, the bank won't go forward with you the loan. Do it. Yeah, yeah exactly. and and I don't know if you had this experience, but if there was too many non owner occupied units in the overall complex, they wouldn't rent on it either. We were one over, and I told Emily, I was like. I didn't know this. I was like, we have to like, you know, we have to rent this thing out and we have to watch this really closely because mm-hmm. if one person turns it into a non-owner occupied, we're done. Like the whole complex loses. And that was scary. I mean, it all worked out though. And it did. We yeah. sold it eventually and made a great return and great profit on it. But it was yeah. we didn't necessarily know all those things when we bought it. So we were fortunate in how everything shaked out. But yeah. then we definitely, those are kind of the three main things we really tell people to look for whenever they're looking at yeah. associations. Yeah, I mean, they can be good. You just have to be aware of those things. Like you said, Kirk, if the number went high and then you tried to sell, then that person's going to have the same financing issues that you would have had. And so you're not going to have an easy time selling it. Which is why, and this get like, I could be on a soapbox all night about this. Mm-hmm. This is why it gets back down to making sure that if you, you know, like you're not going to know everything about every property, right? Like, even if you think you know everything about every property, you're not, but you know as much as you know, and then you fall back on the numbers and the analysis that you did and you buy it at the right price and the right you know time and the right terms because like say in this example with that condo say the worst case scenario happened and we couldn't get FHA financing so that all the values in the condo went down well so what we could fall back on our 25% return ROI you know rental and so after a couple of years you know we would have recouped all of the money that we had put into it so it's not that bad if you have 
fallback plan. But I think a lot of people, what they do is they skate so thin with a deal because Mm -hmm. they want to get a deal more than they want to get a good deal. And on the thinness of the deal, it's important too, is that the homeowners association can raise the fee if they need to. When I bought mine, it was 290, which is high to begin with. And I knew that they were putting a special assessment on. So I built that into my numbers. But if you didn't know that was coming, they added $150 a month to that. So we ended up close to $450 a month. I thankfully had built that in. So I wasn't surprised. Right. Still, if you if you didn't know that and you didn't build that into your numbers, and like you said, if you were really skinny on your crushed. numbers, yeah, you're going to get crushed. If you had $150 in, say, cash flow, it's all gone yeah. now. Yeah. And besides even... Okay. So that can happen too with non-condo properties. We just had actually the house that I hate with all my guts that we sold right before we sold yes. it, the town decided that they were going to redo the entire sewer system. We had no idea. We've owned this property for a couple of years and the town sends us a letter. We got to go to this meeting and they're like, Hey, we're going to redo this entire sewer system. And you are required to replace the entire line from your house, connect to the sewer, dig up your yard, dig up the sidewalk, everything. And it costs us $5,000 to do that for whole two, process. For two, we have two properties in that town. And that was like, close to. It wasn't all of what it netted for the year, but it was close to it. So like that one year nearly wiped out. Right. But again, because we had built in such good numbers, it did not kill us. Right. Definitely stung. It was a bee sting. Yeah. We did not like it. It didn't make us go negative on, you know, profit, but still. Yeah. So it can happen anywhere. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, we talk about this in the context of condos where it's definitely common or can happen more frequently, but it can happen in non-condos too. I mean, they could raise taxes. In, the in town, our town that say, we live in. Yeah. In the town that we live they in. They did a major tax assessment and just killed so and it, many people. They hadn't people. done a re- tax reassessment in our town. Since like the 60s or something. Since like the 60s, right? And so they, and taxes went up like two, three X in some places. I mean, so again, like, I don't know, we sound like real estate's like the worst thing in the world on this podcast at this point, but but it's just like being in, like keeping in mind that like all of these things can and possibly and I think if the more that you can learn, like people that are listening to this can be, I think these are things that you could easily learn ahead of time. Like, okay, so I need to ask my agent about when the last tax reassessment was and what that usually looks like. You know, what does that typically be? Or maybe call your county borough or ordinance and just make a phone call. Same thing I tell a lot of people in our community, like with the sewer thing, before you buy a property, hey, maybe just call the local like town council and say, hey, are any major projects coming up that I need to be aware of? You know, it's a five minute call, but it could save you from getting a bad deal. It could save you a lot of money. So I think the more that you can learn some of these little tips, um, just the better you are, you know, better off you are as an investor. Yeah. I mean, we are talking a lot about the negatives, but I think that's really important. I'm actually really enjoying the conversation because these things do happen. I mean, they're a reality. And I think a lot of times on a lot of podcasts, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and there's a lot of great ones out there. So I'm not talking negatively about them, but a lot of times it's just only the good stuff. And we don't really talk about all of these different things that could happen. And Well, we got all night if you want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Story we got a story, we're good to go. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. And we're, we're dealing with a, a black swan event, you could say, in the yeah. stock market right now. And so, Kirk, you're, you're in the market just like I am. And I think on the real estate podcast, they always talk about how real estate is the only asset class. But one of the things I like to do on the show is talk about how there is a place in your portfolio for the stock market too. So I think this whole conversation is really good, especially for real estate investors to realize that real estate is a great asset class. It's a great way to invest, but you do need to consider all of these different things that we've been talking about. Of course you should. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's, an, it's a no-brainer. Like I tell people all the time, just like I'd say, you know, I think options are great. I think you should also have your money someplace else, right? Because what if you just run into a bad string of trades? Like right now, the Black Swan event right now 
is literally crushing people. And if you don't have enough capital available to withstand that type of pressure, what are you going to do? Like, just if you had all of your real estate in one particular area, in one asset, you know, like I am terrified right now of all of the landlords who have just student rentals and all of these colleges that are closing down. Yep. Our kids going to be coming after you for some reason to try to get money. Or we were actually at dinner before recording this and we said, like, what about Airbnbs that people have really been that are like in metro cities that have been really on like the tourism route and with the shutdown of all of that and flights and people staying home, like how does that impact people who maybe just have Airbnb rentals? So I think there's a lot of, I'm, I get the whole find your niche and stick to it, but I, I think it is a good thing to also kind of diversify and that way you can withstand like we have student rentals. So we will see if our university shuts down, like how that's going to impact us. We have some vacation rentals. Luckily, ours are a little bit not so much metro. Um, so I don't think they'll really take a hit. But it's just something the unforeseeable is now yeah. happening. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, I think, relatively new strategy called Airbnb arbitrage. And it's when someone will rent a property as a tenant and then they Airbnb it out to someone and they essentially make the spread. That was one of the crush. Yeah, exactly. That was going to be exactly my next thing is a lot of people went into that because it takes really no money to get started. And that's a good way, you know, that it was considered a good way to be to be able to get started in real estate without having a lot of capital. But now you look at an event like this and those people are they're gonna get crushed, especially if they don't have the money to cover the the rent. I think it's I mean, look, this is like this is the problem with I think just investing in general is this idea that if it is a little bit of money to get started. Then it is, you know, worth all of the upside potential. And I don't necessarily always agree with that. It's a little bit of money to get started because you just don't see all of the downside risks. And I think all these people who are doing Airbnb arbitrage, especially in some of these very expensive cities, and probably, you know, sign lease agreements for pretty healthy terms because they knew they could rent at the time these higher, you know, rents to Airbnb, they're going to get crushed. Not only are they going to be responsible for the lease, but then if you know the landlord goes after them in court because they broke the lease and then they have legal fees and all that, there's so much that goes into this. I just don't believe that it's so simple to say, oh, you should do this strategy because it's easy and low, no money down. I think you really have to look at all of the possible things that could happen. Like one of the things right now that's really important to me and has been for the last like you know, couple of years is really taking a look at like the liability risk of all of our properties. Like, where do we really have the most liability risk? And now when we move forward and we start buying new properties, how can we layer protection in front of ourselves so that we don't have as much liability? And, and if that means we have to take a little bit of a haircut in return, then so be it, because it's worth it. In yeah, a lot of people are always so concerned or only concerned with the total return number and don't consider other things. And that's not always the most valuable thing. I mean, of course, just like everybody else, I want to make as much money on my money as I can. I'm sure you guys do as right. well. But there's a whole other component of this. And I just recently did a Bitcoin episode on my other podcast. And on that, that episode, I told the story where I bought a Bitcoin a couple of years ago. I owned it for a couple of days and I literally sold it right away because I felt sick. I didn't understand it. I couldn't sleep well at night. And I know it sounds kind of crazy, but it, it's just one of those components. Maybe the, and the returns, it ended up going to 20,000 after that, like almost right after I sold it. So the returns were there. I just, it just wasn't worth, the upside just wasn't worth it for me. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, like, Right now, I'm super, super uh, interested in just the liability risk of everything and just, you know, all the little ancillary things that you don't really take into consideration until you start really tracking it. And, um, and I think that there's a lot more to 
the hash flow number than people would expect. Mm -hmm. So if you start factoring in, I mean, I'm even going as, as granular as saying, you know, how much is this costing me from my CPA? You know, like because I have this property and now requires my CPA to do yet another Schedule E, how much is that time costing me? You know, how much is all the attorney's fees that I'm paying to do the leases and any evictions that we need to do? You know, how are we factoring those in appropriately? Now that we have more data, we can do that. Right. But it's it's hard to do. And you're just getting analysis. and you're not going to be able to do all that analysis when you're just no, getting started. No. So I think you have to really find, like I said, find the things that are the location, the numbers, and you're going to learn a lot as you go. And you're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. I don't often get a guest on the show that's as involved in the stock market as well as real estate as I am. So, Kirk, I'm curious to hear your opinion as to why you think. And I think it's more common in real estate than it is in the stock market, at least in my experience, my anecdotal experience. People in the stock market seem to be more open to other investment strategies, but it seems like in real estate, they're only real estate and they almost feel like it's mutually exclusive and they can't do anything else. Why do you think there is such that dynamic in the real estate space where people in the real estate space think the stock market's gambling or it's just not a good place for money? I think it comes down to the question of control. You know, so mm-hmm. like you hear a lot of times that people say, well, real estate is in your control. And you can control your real estate and you can you know, manipulate the property. And to a certain degree, that's totally accurate. But right now, we're seeing the actual antithesis of no control. I mean, if you're anyway. in a real estate you know, market that's on the East Coast or the West Coast or a student area or near a convention center, you just had all the control stripped out of you in three days. And now you have no control over your property. So you could do all the painting and all the upgrades, but that's not going to bring those people back to that piece of property, right? And so I think that when people are in the stock market, they understand that they have a limited amount of control over what they can do and how they can choose to allocate their portfolio. And then they associate the risk in investing in the market to the things that they can't control, Trump, China, coronavirus, whatever. I think in real estate, people have this false sense of control that they know they can control all of these different aspects when the reality is they can't. That's why you have to do things besides real estate. Real estate could be a core component and you could love it and you could do 80% of it, 90% of it, whatever you want, but just like don't do all of it, right? Because eventually the big black swan is going to come and it's going to get you at some point. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. That's exactly how I think about it as well. So Emily, I'm curious to hear about the time when you quit your full-time job. How many deals had you guys done? How many units did you own before you decided to quit your full-time job and go full-time in real estate? I think we were about... We had done... What did we say? I think six deals at the time, which resulted in about eight doors. We had two uh, duplexes and four just like single. They were the condos and the townhouses. And so, yeah, we were by no means had this massive portfolio. So it was definitely scary. But as a teacher, you don't really make all that much either. So you know. it's a very low Yeah. So it was a low over. threshold that we necessarily had to get to. But I can say that it wasn't an easy decision. It was a very trying decision because I loved it. I love teaching, love my kids. But we had just like when we were newly married, we had a lot. We talked a lot at vineyards, I would say. Yes. <laughs> But we talked a lot about what we wanted our life to look like. And so it was very much a lifestyle decision. We were at a point where Kirk was working now remote at home. And so being able to have income come in that replaced my income as a teacher allowed us to have three, three and a half years before our oldest Molly started kindergarten 
where we were totally living like a lifestyle by design. So we could go and spend three weeks in Florida in the winter and escape the cold. And you know, we could travel when we wanted to and we weren't stuck to a normal schedule that we would be once our kids start school. And so it was really a lifestyle decision. It was, I loved my job. I loved my kids. It was super scary. And everyone and told us super we were scary. crazy. I mean, we were losing my insurance. We had to navigate that whole thing with like teacher's insurance is awesome. So like we had to navigate that. I mean, people your told parents, us we were crazy. I your mean, parents thought we were crazy. Yeah. Where we live in Western Pennsylvania, like teaching is a very good job and people get it and they stay there like 30 years and then they retire from there. Like, so they, whenever I said I was leaving my job, it was like, like you're stupid. So taboo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So taboo. But like the time that we spent as a family and being able to travel and do the things that we did, you know, when I walked my daughter to the bus that first day of school, the three years where I had, did I make the right decision? Should I have left teaching? I mean, when she got on the bus, I was like, I can't get that time back. It was totally worth it. So yeah, I don't think you'll ever make a bad decision. You know, like if you set yourself up right, I don't think you should jump into it and just, you know, just wing it and be like, all right, you know, Kirk and Emily yeah. said we should do this and we should do it, <laughs> yeah. you know? But I don't think that it will ever be a bad decision because, you know, like now as an employer and hiring people, I would love if somebody came in and they said, you know what, I tried to start a business and it totally flopped, but I learned a crap ton of, you know, stuff. And I would love to, you know, bring that knowledge to you. I would look at that as an employer and be like, man, that's really powerful. So I feel like people have this idea that if I fail at this, like I'm going to be a failure. Like you could learn so much from Mm -hmm. doing this. And so what if you fail? Because the idea is if you tried to do it and let's say you're successful, like how would that change your life? You know? I'm glad you mentioned the low salaries that teachers generally have because I was thinking that, but I was not going to be the one to say it. <laughs> yeah. We don't make very much. <laughs> I, I mean, everything you guys said, I, I think it's so true. That's why it's so hard is you're giving up all the insurance, you're giving up all the benefits. I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And you know, like you said, it was your passion. You probably went to college for a while for it. I'm not sure if you have a master's yeah. degree or not, but if you, yeah, so you do. So <laughs> yeah. you spent five or six years in college, probably yeah. a lot of money on it. And so when you when you're giving up something like that, it is a big decision. But there's a lot of like you said, lifestyle benefits that come other than just the salary. So definitely a really interesting dynamic for people to consider. And I think a lot of people get into real estate, like they want to get into it for the financial thing. But I think today. From what I gather, just from people I talk to, a lot of it is that lifestyle thing. I feel like lifestyle, like living that life by design is very much a component of what people want today versus maybe back when like our parents were. Because I don't necessarily like telecommuting wasn't there. The the ability to have flexibility wasn't around 20, 30 years ago. And now it is becoming so much more mainstream that I think people really look for not only the financial aspect of it, but the ability to kind of have some freedom with their lifestyle. And you mentioned that one of the big things that was hard for you was giving up your passion of teaching. You love teaching the kids. But what's great is I know you have your own community, you have your own podcast, you have all of these things going on where you're still teaching people. So now technology has allowed you to still be able to do that passion. Maybe it's not kids. You're you're probably not teaching real estate to to kids, but (laughs) you're still teaching, right? So you're still getting that passion out there and you still get to do real estate and have that lifestyle that you want. So I think that's, that's super amazing. All right, guys. So that wraps up part one of my conversation with Kirk and Emily. Like I said in the intro, this will be a two-part series. We will pick up in next week's episode for part two, right where we left off today. See you guys next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. 
Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.